Hello and welcome to Supervision Smorgasbord, a podcast full of tips, tricks, and interviews with experts to help you enjoy being a supervisor. Here's your host, Dr. Tara Sanderson. Hey everybody and welcome back. This is your host, Dr. Tara Sanderson, and today we are going to answer a write-in question. So if you have write-in questions, if you want to drop me a line and ask something, you can do that on any of my social media at Dr. Tara Sanderson, or you can do that through the Supervision Smorgasbord website. But today's question was, do you ever provide supervision to an associate who also has another supervisor? And then the follow-up is, do you take any specific precautions, like ensuring the uh, supervisee has separate caseloads, or what kinds of things do you do to make sure that everything is set up okay? So this is a really great question, because I think that this comes up a lot, especially if you have um, a really specific specialty, or if you have a really specific uh, type of modality or something like that, that sometimes people will want to grow in that area, but they've already got a supervisor for kind of their general needs, they want to grow in another area. So I think that it is really important for anything that we do to have a good documentation trail. So if you're a supervisor already for a uh, intern or supervisee and they would like some sort of some sort of secondary supervisor or specialty supervisor, it's a great idea to have a conversation about like what might that look like? Because there are so many different ways that you can do it. So in some instances, I'm a primary supervisor for folks and they want a secondary supervisor in EMDR. So I supervise clients that don't navigate any EMDR work and EMDR supervisor does all of the people who are. So one way that that is great is that they get some really clear supervision over the area that they are really learning, learning to and wanting to grow in. And I can continue to supervise the folks that are already a part of my practice or already that I know or whatever kinds of things. Now, the complication becomes when maybe one of my current clients that I supervise uh, becomes a EMDR client. So we do have to have a really good way of communicating amongst the three of us who is who and what is what. So I recommend a spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> you'll hear me say that a lot, but I recommend a spreadsheet or some sort of document that all three of us have access to so that we are able to um, see when people move off of one person's supervision to another or make sure that there's some communication that goes back and forth in that process. Typically, I find that supervision Um, doubling up on supervision or having uh, multiple supervisors is best when there is a really clear way to split people like by modality or by different type of style of treatment. But also you could separate people even alphabetically of A through G and, you know, H through whatever. You could uh, you could separate them out by, you know, intakes after this point to go to the secondary supervisor. You could do it in a lot of different ways. But however you do it, you want to have a good written trail. So what I recommend is that no matter who is the primary supervisor or secondary supervisor, uh, that you have a clear documentation. So each board will likely probably have their own documentation if you're adding a supervisor or adding an additional supervisor. And that's great because that 
tells the board what you've got going on, but that's not enough for getting clear between the three of you about what's happening with that supervision. So you'll want to make sure that you have a document that shows who the primary supervisor is and who the secondary supervisor is and what and how you guys are deciding who's going to be on which caseload. When I think about risk, I think about what would happen if somebody, you know, came to me and gave me a subpoena and said, I want all your records for supervising this person. And I looked at them and thought, well, kind of depends on which client because, you know, you don't, you may not need all the records for all of the clients, right? And if it's somebody who is being supervised by the other party, I would want to make sure that we were getting the right records for what was happening with that supervisee. So we need to have those documents that tell us that. Now, in that contractual document, I don't have anything that really says each client's name in it on that document, but I do reference the document that we will be keeping track of all of those pieces on. So one of the things that I think is also really important in that paperwork is documenting um, what if any changes there are to payment, uh, if they're paying this other supervisor, um, what if any situations might come up where the other might have to supervise. Uh, so if somebody's on vacation or if somebody's on sabbatical or what happens if the supervisee um, has to go into the hospital, who notifies which clients, how do we do those pieces? So it's it really that contractual agreement um, that, that splits out the caseload, that communicates who's responsible for what also really is a, a process document for making sure that those clients are taken care of. Because the thing that we don't want is that somebody might think it is um, it's somebody else's responsibility and that a client kind of get lost gets lost in the shuffle. So that document would help you really define out what and who is responsible for what in, in emergencies or in vacations or in whatever else is going to kind of come up. I also have a note in there that says that it, that it is okay for me to consult with the other supervisor whenever or however I need to so that uh, we can make sure that we have got some clear communication going if I just I just don't want my supervisee to be in the middle. I want my supervisee to feel like they are getting the appropriate supervision from both of us and if there's ever a question of, you know, I think that somebody's doing something weird or they think that I'm doing something weird. I don't want my supervisee to sit in the middle of that. I want to make sure I have a good amount of um, control and connection with that other supervisor to be able to talk to them myself if something comes up. Lastly, I really want to make sure that the uh, supervisee lists both of us on their malpractice insurance so that the malpractice insurance is really clear of like where the first line of defense is if something goes wrong. You know, we want them to go to the supervisee and that that supervisee stuff covers us. And then if we still need more malpractice insurance, then our malpractice insurance kicks in. So I want there to be like a really good flow of, you know, containment if anything were to go wrong. Lastly, I think, uh, well, I guess I already said lastly, but I just thought of something else. So we're going to go with it. Um, I, I think that there is a good uh, follow-up question of, um, is there a difference between being a primary supervisor and a secondary supervisor? And I think that logistically there is. I think that there is a, a really important component of understanding kind of who's 
first in line if something goes terribly wrong. I think we have to be clear of what that looks like. Um, and if you are splitting the caseload by specialty or you're splitting the caseload by something, you really do need, you know, kind of the, you know, who's on who's who's on first or who's a, who's up to bat. I don't know the right um, <laughs> analogy there, but you do really do need the you know, to know who's the first person that this supervisee is going to call and who's going to be responsible at the end of the day if the board, you know, uh, wants to ask a question or is concerned about something. So there is a an element of it where, yes, there's somebody primary and there's somebody secondary. Um, and I think that there, I think that part of that is not power differential in between those supervisors so much as it is just for clarity's sake because uh, they're never going to just be able to call both people and hold both people accountable if the supervisee does something weird. Um, but I do think that, that there can be some real benefits to defining that piece for uh, different avenues. So like there are a few people that I'm a secondary supervisor for, which we really just put in place because we, we knew that the primary supervisor might be having some extended vacations or extended breaks in availability. And we wanted there to be someone just in case so that that supervisee had access to a supervisor. So 99% of the time, I don't read a note. I don't really do anything for that supervisee. But when needed, I step in and help um, support someone. There are other times where I'm really active. We see the supervisee 50% of the time, each of us, and we read all of the notes and we do all of those pieces. So we we don't necessarily look at each other and say, well, you're up first and I'm up second. But the board does need a way to define who's who at the end of the day is the responsible party for this supervisee. And the primary supervisor is going to get the brunt of that. And, and that's a, an important thing for both of the supervisees to uh, communicate about and make clear so that everybody uh, knows their role and knows what's expected of them and how we move that forward. So I hope that that was helpful to talk about primary and secondary supervisees and how to share those pieces. Um, I have a document inside of our how to have interns in your practice that walks you through how to add a secondary supervisor to your internship or your uh, supervisee program. Uh, so you can find me at Dr. Tara Sanderson backslash interns and uh, see that as part of my course. If you are interested in asking your own question or hearing an episode talking about some of those uh, pieces that you have concerns about, you can feel free to drop me a line at supervisionsmorgasbord.com or on social media at Dr. Tara Sanderson. All right, folks, have a great day and take care. Hey, everybody. Let's talk about our takeaways for today. The first one is to create a spreadsheet to help the multiple supervisors for a supervisee communicate. This can be a way to know all of the clients that are on a supervisee's caseload, um, who's responsible for what, and, uh, and make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page. It should give instruction on how you're deciding who's being supervised by who and clearly delineate which supervisor is primary or secondary for that client. And then of course, any risk factors or any vacations could go on there too, just to make sure everybody is keeping things really clear. The second one is to make sure that you have a contract between all three parties. Uh, so this is in addition to maybe your informed consent or your supervision contract with the supervisee, but there is a way that all three of you are communicating about this. So in 
you could include things like how do we choose whose clients are whose? What's the payment situation? Who covers what for vacations or sabbaticals? Um, who notifies clients in case of emergency? Uh, we could put on there th things like the hours reporting or evaluations, who's going to do what for those, how often they happen, when supervision is scheduled if that's needed, uh, clarification that each supervisor can consult with each other, and clear communication that both supervisors are listed on the malpractice insurance as well as all other kinds of documents. Well, that is it for today. I hope that you learned something about multiple supervisors and I can't wait to hear more of your questions next time. Take care. This has been Supervision Smorgasbord with Dr. Tara Sanderson. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find us at drterrasanderson.com backslash podcast and on all social media at Dr. Tara Sanderson. Thank you, and we will see you next time.